Um, we're in a series, uh, this will be week three of a series called Through the Bible in Seven Weeks. Uh, and as we've been going through, I've been trying to make this connection point, this thread uh, that we see throughout Scripture. And uh, how many of you have ever seen like the, the Pixar movies, right? I think a new one just came out in uh, Incredibles 2. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you, you, everybody likes Pixar movies for the most part. Uh, if you don't, um, maybe you go to a Wiccan church. I don't know, but... I, no, I, th- I think everybody likes uh, uh, Pixar movies, but there's kind of been this understanding or this theory uh, that all of the Pixar movies have secretly are, are secretly connected to each other. Uh, not so much in theme or plot or design, but in terms of planting something in each of the movies, somehow, some way to to connect one of the other movies to it. Uh, in Hollywood, they call that Easter eggs, where they just kind of subtly plant these little Easter egg um, hints into their movies. Well, uh, um, Disney came out and actually admitted that's true and produced a movie that shows you the connection of all of those. So why don't you take a look at this? excited about this. Whoa! You're vicious! Hold on, Mr. Ant! time with that. Uh, and the short answer is just because I can. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, no, it's this idea. So scripture also has this, these common threads, right? That, uh, that's why we're, we're doing this overview, this 30,000 foot view of all 66 books of the Bible, because 
We want you to see that there is in a single spiritual universe how all of the books connect with each other. And so in week one, we covered the, the beginning books, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and then last week, we covered 12 historical books uh, in detail, that detail the life of the people of Israel and the promised land. And I want to give you our theme verses uh, for the series. It's from Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance, and honestly, getting through all of the scripture takes some endurance, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. And so today we're going to take a look at the next five, which are, are pretty unique in, in nature. They deal with really the most important question that you can ask. In fact, Andy Stanley wrote a book about this called The Best Question Ever. And the best question ever is, what is the wise thing to do? There's a lot of good questions. There's a lot of important questions like, uh, should I take this job? Or is, uh, is she the one for me? Does God want me to move? Should I lease or buy? Should I stay, leave, do whatever? Should I run the red, not run the red light, but should I do whatever? Right, important questions. But the reason why, uh, what is the wise thing to do is the most important question ever is because it helps us answer all of the other questions in our life. But that's not all. It's also the key to avoiding the most important thing in the world, and that is regret. Think about your single uh, greatest regret that you've had in your life. Get it in your mind. Got it? Some of you didn't play along, so get just let it just right there. And then the question is, could that have been avoided by asking the most important question in the world, is this the wise thing to do? See, nobody plans on messing up their life. But the problem is, is nobody plans not to either. See, the, we don't think about searching out wisdom and, and looking for wisdom on the front end of things. We just realize that we didn't on the back end. I'll give you some example, uh, an example of, of scripture in Ephesians where it says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And so the Bible doesn't just highlight wisdom. It gives it to us. Like, like straight up just hands it to us on everything that we need wisdom about. And nowhere is wisdom more concentrated in Scripture and practically laid out for our consumption than in these next five books of the Bible. Right? They're nothing but raw, unfiltered wisdom. And that's the part of the Bible we're going to go through today. The books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Songs. They are books that give counsel, they give advice, they give commentary for life. And each of them is written uniquely. So Job is a story. Psalms is a combination of, of song lyrics and prayers. Proverbs are, are short sayings, and Song of Songs is a love poem. 
Ecclesiastes is like a, a long blog or journal entry looking back on life from someone who's at the end of theirs. And each one of these offer a unique perspective on human existence. So let's dig into them, and we'll start with the book of Job. Job is one of the more confusing books for people, uh, primarily because it's as if we just don't know what to make of it. Right? If you've ever written, uh, if you've ever read the book of Job, uh, you you read it and you you scratch your head and you think, what is going on? Why is this in here? Why do I need to read this? This is depressing. It tells the story of a man named Job. It's why they call it the book Job, because it's about a man named Job. It's very creative. By all accounts, Job is a good man. Right? He, he's a God-fearing man. He's a God-honoring man. And, and for all intents and purposes, his life is going really well. We would look at him and say, Joe's a successful man. The story is, is a little bit like, I don't know if you guys ever remember that song, the Charlie Daniels song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. It's basically that. Right? It's, it, it's that song. It, here, here's what happens is, the devil approaches God, and he makes this bet with him, seems to make this, this bet. And here's the bet. If, if God were to let the devil take away some of the good life that Job is experiencing, some of the blessings that Job is experiencing, he thinks that Job will turn on God. In other words, what he's saying is the only reason that Job has a relationship with God, the only reason he loves God, is because he has been blessed. And so God agrees to the deal, but he puts a limit on how far the devil can go. Unfortunately for Job, the limit wasn't very big. And so the devil takes away his money, takes away his health, even the life of many of his family. And yet Job stands faithful. However, in the process, his wife Four of his friends come to him and try to get him to either curse God, turn his back on God, or to confess what in their mind must be some heinous sin that he has committed in order to get God to stop punishing him. Right At the, at the very least, agree that God is trying to discipline him for something, but Job doesn't want any of it. Right? He doesn't want to hear anything about it because he refuses to curse God and doesn't feel in his heart that he's done anything uh, in which to deserve all that's happened. But he does question God as to the why of it all. At the very end, God himself engages them in this dialogue and essentially takes them all to task, right? He, the heart of God's message is, you are in no position to question me about anything. He, he says in, in Job, he says, when, when, where were you when I birthed the world into existence? In other words, you weren't there. You don't get to question anything that I do. But then he restores all that Job had lost and, and more. Now, there's several questions about the book of Job that people always seem to wrestle with. First is, is this actually a story about an actual man? Or is this a morality tale? Well, it seems to tell the story of a real man, uh, gives us real names, real places, 
But it also takes us to kind of into this very presence of God, into the court of God, and gives us this dialogue between God and the devil that, that no human being could have had access to. Now, granted, these are divinely inspired books, and that could easily have just been revealed to the author. An author, by the way, we don't know who it is. It's clearly not Job uh, in, 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 in history. Uh, we do know, however, that this is one of the oldest books in the Bible. It's one of the most ancient books. So what is the point of Job? Why is it in Scripture? Well, I think it's attempting, no, I don't think, I know, it's attempting to answer the que- one of the oldest questions and a question that's still relevant today. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we still ask that question. We still say, why, why if, I'm, if I'm doing good, why do bad things happen to me? And the theology of Job here and his friends, they, re- they revolve around really three big ideas. The first is that God is clearly all-powerful. Secondly, he is perfectly just. And third, that no one is completely innocent and free of wrongdoing. And from that, his friends conclude that the only reason for Job's afflictions, the only reason for Job to, be, uh, uh, to, to have all of this bad happen to him is it must be punishment for his sin, which is the way a lot of people would look at things in antiquity. And honestly, it's the way a lot of people look at things today, right? We, we've kind of bought into this idea of you get what you deserve. We've bought into this idea of karma. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but karma is like a whole nother team and sport. Like, Like, that's like, that's somebody else. And yet somehow we've allowed karma to infiltrate our Christianity to the point in which we, we say things like, God, why is this happening to me? I go to church all the time. I give. I serve on the dream team. I'm not even serving on the dream team. I'm serving down the kids' hall on the dream team. Why would anything bad happen to me? Because surely if you're doing all of these good things, then nothing bad because that's karma. That's not us. And don't give us a Google review if you thought it was, Right? Don't do it. Karma is a completely different thing. And so when bad things happen to good people, it messes us up. Because we think that if we just do good things, then good things will happen to us. And when it doesn't happen, our minds are blown. And the question for all of us is, if all of our blessing is taken away, how will we respond to our relationship with God? See, the book of Job brings this different perspective to the problem of evil. It reminds us that there's a devil that's involved in the affairs of God and humans, and a being who is intent on undermining the relationship between God and humans. And in many ways, that's that's what Job is about. It's not really about what happened to Job or why, or about the challenge the devil made to God about God and his relationship with with human beings. The point is that the devil was trying to make was that the only reason that Job had a relationship with God was because he was blessed. 
Now listen, everybody, without any guilt or condemnation, I would just remind all of us, we live in one of the most blessed countries in the world. We live in one of the most blessed states in the world and some of the most blessed communities in the world. And if all of that was stripped away, how would we respond to our relationship with God? Would we be like Job and continue to remain faithful and put our trust in him or would we turn our backs on him? See, you take away the blessings and you lose the relationship. If that was true, see, if if the devil could have proved that that was the case, then he would have proven that people's relationship with God wasn't a relationship at all. If Satan was right, then God had utterly failed to have anything authentic with human beings. And so when God said to Satan, okay, well, let's see. Let's see if you're right. In a way, in in essence, he was saying he was defending both himself and Job. He was like, I like my man Job. I think he's going to come through. I think he's going to stay true to our relationship. And and by accepting this, he's saying Job's a better man than you think. He says what Job and I have between us is something much more authentic and much deeper than just having stuff or being blessed. See, what's between God and Job is proven real, and so the devil is silenced. What ends up happening in the end, because everybody likes the good, a good ending to a story, is that God restores all of the blessings in Job's life and even more. So Job's suffering isn't, isn't without meaning. The suffering isn't a punishment, but it was a test, a trial in regard to his faithfulness to that relationship. One that Job passed and God ended up rewarding him abundantly. Which brings us to the book of Psalms. Well, this is one of the most uh, beloved books of the Bible. The word Psalms and the word Psalter come from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, Originally, they were words that uh, referred to stringed instruments, such as a a harp or a a lute. Uh, They carried the meaning of the songs sung with one of those instruments. The original Hebrew title uh, was Tehillim. I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly, but it's Tehillim, which simply means praises. So Psalms is written by uh, a wide variety of authors, uh, many of which were written by King David. Uh, David wrote a lot of these, and a lot of them were songs to God. They were also prayers to God. Uh, They're familiar to us, and not just to us, they're familiar to the world. Let me give you an example of the familiarity of Psalms for you. Uh, I'll just read this one to you and see if you recognize it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Uh, He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a familiar psalms. It's a, it's a prayer of David and, and a worship from David. It's a psalms that no matter where you're at, you've, whether you're Christian or not, you recognize it. 
there's really not a whole lot of questions that come out of Psalms because we all kind of like them, right? There's nothing a little too controversial in there. But one of the questions that we do have is what in the world or, or what's the deal with the word Selah? Because right? we see it, it's like 39 different times it's in there, and you're reading through the Psalms, and all of a sudden, it's this word, Selah, and you look it up, and you're like, I don't know what it means. Well, the reality is, is if you want to know what Selah, I mean, let me just give you an example of where it's at in Psalm 66. Shout with joy to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious, say to God, awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Selah. So what does Selah mean added to the end like that? I have no idea. And nobody really knows. Right? Nobody knows for sure what it means. All we do know is that it's some kind of notation uh, that a worship leader would understand. And if you know many worship leaders, you know they kind of have a language of their own. They're creative, artsy people, and, uh, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to us regular folk, right? No, it's, it's this idea that there is, is most probably something along the lines of a musical interlude that would have taken place, or uh, a time in which it invites the congregation to be a part of the worship to, in, in the form of, of singing a new song. Now, th those, are, um, those are perceptions, or those are, uh, con that's conjecture. It's not for sure, because nobody knows for sure, but that's where they're placed. We can at least ascertain that it has something to do with that, that that's the most common suggestion. Now, what they would do, so if you think about our worship, there are moments in our worship where it's just the instruments. Well, that would be Selah, right? Or there's moments in where Jeremy or, or, or Brian or Kelly uh, invite us to, um, to sing our own song unto the Lord, right? While the music plays and we can sing our own praises, which... Whenever they do that, nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but we don't really respond all that well to that, right? Because we don't really know what to do. But what they're inviting us to is Selah. They're inviting us as a congregation not to read the words up on the screen or sing the words up on the screen, but to actually sing a new song unto the Lord, to sing to the Lord what's going on in our hearts, God, you, this last week, you've been so gracious and merciful in my life. And I don't know how you sing that, but you, you figure out a way to sing it. And you don't even have to have a good voice or the right. You don't even have to be in tune. You just, you sing it. And so just, just as a, as a uh, public service announcement, I would encourage all of us that when our worship team and our leaders invite us into Selah, that it's biblical. That is something of a response from the congregation where it's not just you receiving a song from the worship team, but actually participatory in the songs that we sing in the worship and the praise of Almighty God. Consider yourself noticed. Okay. So a couple things about the Psalms. First, they're songs and they should be sung. Right? We don't know what the tunes were, but we have the lyrics. 
they're really meant to help us organize our thoughts and our hearts around God. But many of the Psalms are also prayers. And so we should pray them. Right? A lot of people don't know that it's okay to plagiarize the Psalms when you're praying. Right? You, we, we think, well, if, if, if I don't say it with my own words, then, then God's not going to receive it. But the reality is, is that the Psalms, the prayers of the Psalms are there for our use. They've been given to us to pray. If you're not sure how to praise God, you could grab hold of of Psalm chapter 8, right? And pray it to him. If you don't know how to confess your sin, you grab hold of David's great prayer of confession in Psalm 51. And you make it your own and you pray that to God. If you don't know how to give proper thanks for all that he's done for you, then you take hold of Psalm 100 and make it your prayer. The Psalms are not just meant to be read. They're not just meant to be posted on Facebook or Instagram as some pithy statement. They're prayers, they're worship songs that are meant to be directed to our Heavenly Father. Which leads us to Proverbs. Among the wisdom books, you've got Job, you've got Psalms, and then you've got Proverbs. And this is hands down one of my favorite books of the Bible that I love to hate. See, I don't like this book. Well, I love this book, but I hate this book because when I was a teenager, uh, every morning um, before I went to school, my mom would read to me Proverbs. And when I say read to me Proverbs, I'm really saying instruct me with Proverbs, right? She she would say things that are in Proverbs, things about decision-making and wisdom and about life and school and hard work and all this stuff, and I couldn't refute it. As a teenager, you're thinking to yourself, when your parents are, are telling you to do something, you're just thinking, well, you're just getting older in age and you don't understand my life and and if you really knew my life you wouldn't be telling me that and and we just chalk it up as they don't know any better right actually first service I said you're just an old woman and and then she's in service this service so I, I changed it you're just getting older in age and I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this conversation but but in our minds, we're, we're thinking, well, you're, that's just your knowledge. That's just your information. You can't come at me with that. But see, my mom was actually really much smarter than I was. Because she knew, well, if I just give him the scripture, what's he going to do? Say God's not right? Right? So she gives me all of this wisdom and knowledge from the scriptures. And I'm like, yeah, but, and she's like, hey, take it up with God. Right? You don't like it? Take it to God. She was smart. And if you're a parent, you should do what she did. Right? When when your kids are saying, you're dumb, you don't know better, this is 2018, everything's different than when you were a kid and all that stuff. The wisdom of Scripture never changes. The wisdom of Scripture is always the same. And so now we can take Scripture, and now we can take Scripture and give it to our kids. And when our son's like, I don't think you know what you're talking about, I'm like, take it up with God. And Grammy, right? Because she's the one that taught it with me. So those two people, 
right? That's the wisdom. And so for, for us, Proverbs gives us so much. It's, it's one of the books now, having uh, realized the, uh, the genius that was my mom giving this to me, now I realize the importance of it. And, and so now I, I don't do it every day, but I have an app that sends me a Proverbs every day, and I usually open it and click on it and start my day with, with a proverb. Uh, when we go through 21 days of prayer uh, in August and in, in January, I try to go through the entire book in those 21 days. There's 31 Proverbs to go through all 31 and 21. And, and it gives me the opportunity to remind myself of the wisdom that God has for us. The author of, of Proverbs was Solomon. He was the son of, of one of the most famous kings of Israel, David. David was the leader of Israel. This is the David that killed Goliath, right? That, that David. And Solomon was his son. In fact, he's the second son, uh, or he's the second child of David and Bathsheba. Solomon had this defining moment with God that came in the form of a dream. And I think it's worth reading to really get a handle on what's going on with this book of Proverbs. Last week, we talked about the historical books, and we addressed First and Second Kings. I want us to go back for a moment to First Kings chapter 3, and I want you to see the connection. We're, we're reading Proverbs, but we're finding out the context by which it came. In 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, well, listen, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and he was righteous and he was upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day, talking about himself. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies or a brand new car, right? But just for discernment in administrating, administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be, uh, there will have never been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and you obey my statutes and my commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon wakes up and realizes, oh, that was just a dream. So there you have the origin of Solomon's great wisdom. It was divine in its origin, supernatural uh, in, in the insight. So it's not surprising then just one chapter later in the book of 1 Kings chapter 4, we read about Solomon realizing that wasn't just a dream. God gave, in verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashores. 
Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And that's what the book of Proverbs is. It's the record of Solomon's God-given wisdom. Wisdom about discernment and character, about what's true, what's right, how to have sound judgment and, and sound thinking. It tells us how life tends to work and how we should begin to work on, on life. It's, given, uh, it's all given through what are called these proverbs, these short, compact, direct statements that speak truth about human behavior. Statements that, that are packaged and then delivered, bringing this wisdom to bear in such a blunt, direct, street-smart kind of way. I'll give you a couple examples because some of them are a little, little raw. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 through 29 says, uh, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. In other words, it's not going to go well for you. In Proverbs eleven twenty-two, it says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. A little harsh. Proverbs 25. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house because too much of you and he will hate you. Don't be the guy that just always shows up at your neighbor's house. Right? Just hangs out forever. Don't be that guy. The, at the heart of all of the Proverbs, however, the biggest bit of wisdom that comes from it is the fear of the Lord. I'll give you a sampling of how this is talked about throughout the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear the Lord and shun evil. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord adds length to life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life. There's more about the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs than any other book because it lies at the heart of wisdom. If you're looking for wisdom, fear the Lord. The wise live their life in the fear of the Lord and fools do not. Now, what I mean by fear is I'm not talking about cowering in fright, being afraid of the Lord. It's not that God is going to get you and so you have to, that he's mad at you and you have to walk on eggshells when you're around him because, I, oh, I'm living in the fear of the Lord. It's not like he's, he's the person that, that, want, that you want to steer clear of because they've got a chip on their shoulder. That's not what this is talking about. Right? That's not who God is. If we look at the character of God, what we recognize is that we come to God who is compassionate and merciful and full of grace as sons and daughters, not as, as fearful servants. 
So what does Proverbs mean by fear? The phrase fear of the Lord is about a respect for God. It's about, it's about honoring God. It's about recognizing and acknowledging that his authority, it's recognizing and acknowledging that he has authority, and it's about obeying his commands. It's having this healthy sense that he is there. And so when you're asking yourself the question, is this the wise thing to do? Walking in the fear of the Lord is recognizing that he is present in that moment. Now on to Ecclesiastes. If Job didn't mess with you, this one might. What other book begins with the words, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? What's, what's the deal with that? Ecclesiastes is, is also thought to have been written by Solomon, right? But, but towards the end of his life. And to understand Ecclesiastes, what you have to do is you have to actually read the entire book. Because if you just read the beginning, you're going to be like, uh, this, this seems to go against other things that are said in the Bible, because what's, what's happening here is, is like a guy who's lost his faith and he's venting about it and, he, and, and he's emptying himself of it. He, he, he's, he's finding himself empty as a result of kind of questioning his faith. And we could all, you know, stand in judgment and say, oh, what a loser that he would walk away. I mean, God gave him wisdom and all of these things. And yet I would argue that many of us have felt that or feel that or have walked through this, uh, this private thinking in our heads where we begin to question a little bit of our faith, where we drift just a little bit. What he ultimately found was that he was nothing apart. What he found was that nothing apart from God could actually satisfy his life. But that's why you have to keep reading. You can't just stop and you're like, oh, this is depressing. Yeah, I'm not reading it. No, you got to get to the end. Because in the end, after saying a lot of things that we may have said in our lives, he says, and that's why at the end of my life, I realize that all I have is faith in God. And that is the only thing that gives me meaning. So the key to Ecclesiastes is reading it to its very end. Now to Song of Songs. This is a, a title that simply means the greatest of songs. In the Hebrew, it reads Solomon's Song of Songs, meaning it's the greatest song by, for, or about Solomon. Now, I'm not going to go into depth uh, too much of the, the book Song of Solomon's, primarily because we did a whole series on it called Love Story. Now, this book is the book that your parents probably told you not to read, but really shouldn't have because you wouldn't have gotten the innuendos. But now, as an adult, you're reading it and you're like, oh, that's what that means. Right? That, whoa. That, that's that, that's a little uh, X-rated, right? It should be called Fifty Shades of Solomon or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm probably getting in trouble for that. I'll give you just some of the G-rated versions of this, or not versions, but G-rated verses. 
Kiss me full on the mouth. Yes, for your love is better than wine, headier than aromatic oils. It's in chapter one. How beautiful you are, my love. How beautiful your eyes are soft as doves. What a, a lovely, pleasant thing you are lying upon the grass. Right? Those are just, that's just kind of the warm-up. That's just chapter one of where he's headed in this, in this poem, in this, this love poem to his wife. Now, unlike using the Psalms in our everyday life, uh, I wouldn't advise using the Song of Psalms verses uh, towards your wife, at least not some of them. Uh, in chapter four, you know, like if you find yourself tr- trying to come up with a, a card for your wife or a nice thing because you, you're in the doghouse, don't don't use this verse. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. I mean, you're like, well, that, that sounds good. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely giving her this one. Uh, your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats <laughs> descending from Mount Gilead. Your, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. It's probably not anniversary material. <laughs> but what is the purpose of this? Why is it in here? Why do we, why do we spend time reading it? Some of you guys are like, I don't know that was in there. I am going to read my Bible now, right? Let's just see what kind of innuendos there are. One of the big reasons for this is it reminds us that not only is sex good, but it's a God thing. That when people begin to study what the Bible has to say about sex, the first and the most shocking thing that they realize, because it goes against all of the caricatures of what culture thinks about the Bible and about Christianity, is that the Bible is anything but anti-sex. Instead, it teaches us that God created sexuality. Right, that, that sex was part of his desire and design for our bodies and lives. In the opening chapters, uh, as we read in, G- in Genesis, we have the clearest statement imaginable that God made Adam a man to both want and need and desire a woman, Eve. And not just emotionally, but physically, that we're to become one flesh. So sex is God's idea. It's, it's God's design. It's his creation. And under God's design, it's... It's something that is amazing and wonderful, and it's a gift. It's not, and hear me when I say this, it is not dirty or cheap or sordid or immoral. It is meant as a gift. But not just a gift for pleasure. It was also a gift for intimacy. And not just about pleasure and intimacy, but holiness. It's not just biology or commitment, but spirituality. It is a sacred union. Song of Songs explores this and shows us that in the right context, sex is holiness. So there you have it. (laughs) Some of you guys are like, I'm definitely going back and reading that. It's the wisdom literature. That's the section that we've just been through. Read it. Get get up on how to answer the most 
important question ever. Read through the Proverbs. Experience the wisdom of God for your life because next week we're just going to tackle a few, a few, chapter, uh, a few books, like, like 17 of them, uh, in the prophetic uh, teachings, the provocative books of the Bible that, that is the prophetic material, and you're not going to want to miss it. It's going to mess us up a little bit. Uh, let's, let's pray.